Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to Haunted Up North, the supernaturally sexy podcast <laughs> dedicated to the telling of real-life paranormal experiences from the north of the British territories. I'm your host, Victoria, and I really hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the spectral tales I'm about to tell you today. Would you like to hear about a haunted ship? Would you? Would you like to hear about a haunted ship? How much would you like to hear about a haunted ship? I'll presume you said a lot, which is good, because I've got a lot to say about a haunted ship. It's not the Black Pearl. It's not the Jolly Roger. It's not the Flying Dutchman. It's Monty Python's Flying Circus. It's not really Monty Python's Flying Circus, or the Flying Dutchman. I'll tell you in a minute what it is, but before I begin spouting all my ghoulish, ghostly nonsense, I'd just like to give a little update about the Haunted Up North Patreon page. You may have heard me talk about it on here in previous episodes, but for reasons far too boring to relate, it is no longer active. Not for the foreseeable, anyway. So, great big thanks to everyone who's supported me on there. It's very appreciated, and may your chimneys be forever swept for your invaluable donations and encouragement to the show. But there's a new Haunted Up North donation page in town on Coffee. That's ko-fi at www.coffee.com slash hauntedupnorth, where you can either buy me a coffee as and when you wish, to help support the upkeep and future development of the show. You don't have to sign up for anything to contribute in this way. You can just literally donate via the magic of the internet, or you can set up a monthly donation. Main message is, new page. Buy us a one-off coffee, if you like, or many coffees, or no coffees, it's up to you. Do what you want. But you will get a shout-out on the show, unless you prefer to remain anonymous. And perhaps in time, if the numbers are in our favour, there'll be scope for more bonus Haunted Up North content to be available on there in the hopefully not-so-distant future. Anyway, back to haunted business. The focus of today's episode is, in fact, (laughs) not Monty Python's Fine Circus. Yes, that was a very funny joke, wasn't it? It's the really rather frightening and very haunted ship... The SS Alchemist. The SS Alchemist. It's spelt A-L-K-I-M-O-S, so I was calling it the Alchemos for a while in my head, but I think it's called the Alchemist. I've been aware of the SS Alchemist for a number of years now because the subject of ghost ships, shipwrecks, haunted ships and haunted shipwrecks, and not even haunted shipwrecks, just shipwrecks, is one that I just absolutely love. I'm obsessed with the Titanic and even have a bit of Titanic coal in my living room, which I've talked about on here before in the episode I did with Martin about Crumlin Road Jail. Go and have a listen to that if you want to hear more about my Titanic coal (laughs) and, of course, Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. I'm a bit of a sea worshipper. (laughs) I don't know why that's making me laugh. Just is. Uh, I'm a bit of a sea worshipper, having holidayed extensively in British seaside villages from just about birth. And there's a certain sort of magic for me with spooky stories involving the ocean. 
I'm positively fascinated with stories about ghost ships, as in ships that are found floating about on water with no explanation as to why. Like the Mary Celeste, which we'll talk about another day, because that's an incredibly intriguing story in itself. But even just even ghost ships that have merely broken loose upon the water, like that Russian ghost ship, the MV Lubov Olova. <laughs> MV Lub- Lubov Olova. Is that how you say it? The internet, tell me how to say it. MV Lubov Olova. That one that was floating around Canada for a while in 2013. I just find it very exciting and mysterious, and I don't know why, I just do. By the way, if, like me, you're into things like that, I recently watched a show called The Terror. Many of you will have already heard of it, but it originally came out in early 2018 and starred Jared Harris, and it's an awesome series. It's a supernatural historical horror and a fictionalised dramatisation of Captain Sir John Franklin's real-life lost expedition to the Arctic between the years of 1845 and 1848. It's basically cool Victorian ships getting trapped in ice against a backdrop of barren Arctic uh, backdrop (laughs) Uh, with wind and snow and polar bears and creaking cabins and stuff. It was originally a book by a guy called Dan Simmons, published in 2007, which I haven't read yet, but the TV adaptation is breathtaking. Please watch it if you have a strong stomach (laughs) and a firm resolve. They recently found the wrecks of the two ships involved in the expedition, which was the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. Like I said, both actual real-life ships, and if you're a bit of a bumhead like me, you can even see photographs of the graves, like the actual frozen bodies of some of the poor sailors who died during the expedition and were buried in nearby ground, and there's still some Victorian cans knocking about the area that were used to contain food that the crew ate while they were stranded in the Arctic. You'll have to Google Sir John Franklin's expedition to read the full story of the historical version of events. It's just as interesting to read about that as it is to watch the otherworldly TV dramatisation. And, of course, where exactly in the Arctic the whole thing took place, because I've not explained that very well. It's the Arctic. It's there. It's in there. Maybe it'd be good for an episode one day, but until then, go have a read online. But be prepared for abject misery. Fascinating, though the tale may be. If you do watch The Terror and you end up liking it, or loving it, or if you've already watched The Terror and want more of the same, there's another small screen adaptation of a book called The North Water by Ian Maguire. A book I have read, but yeah, The Terror and The North Water, read them, watch them, and love them. I wish I could read them and watch them and love them for the first time all over again. So if you do do all of those things for the very first time, let it be known, I am jealous of thee. So, okay, the SS Alchemist, the SS standing for either screw steamer or steamship, I don't know, or single screw ship? This means nothing to me, as Ultravox would say. But the SS Alchemist I've known of for a few years now, but so far my knowledge of it has been limited to merely looking at photos of it and going, purely on the basis that it's a very creepy shipwreck. So I was pretty excited about researching this episode, as it it was at the time of starting, when I was starting to gather all the info, uncharted territory for me. 
much like the Northwest Passage was for the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror when they were trying to find a navigable shipping route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So yeah, I've known about it for a while. But one of my incredibly lovely patrons, Samantha, on Instagram, her Instagram handle is sam.icreations. Samantha, who lives in Perth in Western Australia, contacted me to tell me she's recently moved to the coastal suburb of Alchemist, a place that's named after the SS Alchemist ship itself, as it ran aground approximately 410 metres offshore there in 1963 and still remains at that location to this day. You may have noticed, I said, Australia, which is the most unnorthern you can get in relation to where I live in the British Isles, but as I've said before on Haunting Up North, if there's a ghost story to be had, I don't care where in the world it's from. Because even though I may be a bumhead, I'm not a massive bumhead, and I'm by no means in favour of leaving our international neighbours out when it comes to real good ghosts. Nowhere is safe from my bumheadery. So, Sam on Instagram suggested that the alchemist would be a fantastic subject to do a Haunted Up North episode on, and I agreed with her. It would, and it is. Sam has been an absolutely amazing supporter of Haunted Up North, and we've talked about many things since we've become paranormal pals together. We've talked about Danny Robbins from the podcast Uncanny, Ghostbusters, the films, Ghost Adventures, the TV show, Most Haunted, the British TV show, Paul Hogan, aka Crocodile Dundee, Donald Trump, that man, Elon Musk, that other man, Jaws the Revenge, also a film. <laughs> I don't know why I need to explain all this, it's just, just started and thought I'd carry on. Kath and Kim, the Australian comedy show, Kath and Kim, Little House on the Prairie, The Boy Band Bros, Summer Heights High, Heartbreak High, and obviously Home and Away. Not just because it's a massively famous small screen Australian show, but because Sam used to live near Palm Beach in Sydney where Home and Away is filmed. Sam and I have also talked extensively about the UK as Sam actually lived in Britain as a small child. Her mum is from London and her dad was born in Grassington, which is a North Yorkshire village about 40 minutes drive from me. So it's a place I know pretty well. Her grandfather worked as head gardener at Sledmere House in East Yorkshire, as well as another stately home in Durham, where he met her grandmother, who was working there as a maid. Sam herself was born in Scotland and lived in England until she was about 11 years old, when her family moved to Australia and she still has a wealth of relatives dotted about the British Isles, particularly in the North, which is why this show appeals to her so much, because it ignites a strong sense of nostalgia with regards to her old life back in Britain and the subsequent holidays she's had there since she moved away. But the thing we've talked about most is the SS Alchemist, which is what I'm going to talk to you today about. I hope you enjoy it. The SS Alchemist. I'm going to tell you about it properly now. The SS Alchemist was, sorry, my, I've just got a new cat and she started to eat her biscuits quite loudly next to me. So I'm going to have to stop for a minute. Oh, she's taking ages. I'm just going to have to <laughs> carry on. Sorry if you can hear <laughs> the biscuit squelch crunch noise. 
But yes, the SS Alchemist was a Greek-owned merchant ship built during World War II by Bethlehem Fairfield Shipyards in Baltimore, Maryland, in the United States, USA. The name of which was originally intended to be George M. Shriver. It was launched on... Flipping biscuits... It was launched on the 11th of October, 1943, biscuit noise, as part of the United States Liberty Ship Program. However, on the 20th day of that same month, it was reassigned to the Norwegian Shipping and Trade Mission and rechristened Vigo the Carpathian. No, it wasn't. It was rechristened Vigo Hanstein. It saw war service for about 18 months, mainly around the Mediterranean, and served as a troop ship and transported cargo and convoys that, during this time, suffered occasional attacks from the German military. Towards the end of the war, it was used to transport US soldiers and German prisoners of war. When the war ended, it was sold again, but on April 24th, 1952, it ran aground two miles northeast of the Kateke Point Lighthouse near Meraki on the east coast of New Zealand's South Island, whilst on a voyage from London via Panama to Port Chalmers and Wellington, carrying new British cars and bag cement. It was fortunately refloated after only having suffered slight damage and was subsequently sold the following year to Greek-owned Pharaoh Shipping of London, who renamed it Alchemus after the Greek god Alchemus. On the 19th of March 1963, whilst on a voyage from Jakarta to Bunbury, it's been everywhere this ship, hasn't it? Whilst on a voyage from Jakarta in Indonesia to Bunbury in Bunbury. <laughs> Is that how you say it? Bunbury, apparently. That's a better way of saying it. So, whilst on a voyage from Jakarta in Indonesia to Bunbury in Western Australia, the alchemist struck a reef near Beagle Island off the Western Australian coast, where it was salvaged and towed to Fremantle, the port city for Perth, where it underwent repairs for two months. After being towed out of Fremantle on the 31st of May, destined for Hong Kong, the tow line gave way due to bad weather after only a few hours out of port, and it was driven onto the shore, filled with water, and left in the charge of an onboard caretaker. Another tow was arranged in January 1964, and it was refloated on February the 14th, Valentine's Day, but was seized by authorities a week later at sea and left anchored. On the 2nd of May, the ship broke anchor and was driven onto the Eglinton Rocks near the western Australian suburb of Yanchep, this time suffering such severe damage that made it impossible to salvage. It was later sold by the owners for scrap. However, in 1969, salvage workers were driven off the wreck by a fire, which reignited each time they returned. After that, the partly dismantled ship was abandoned in water and it, it still sits there to this day. It's still visible to visitors, but it's disintegrating further with every year it remains languishing in the sea. Sam sent me a rather cool short video of the view from Alchemist Beach looking over to the Alchemist wreck and you can in fact see it from the beach it was named after. So I'll share that on social media. I really enjoyed receiving it, because I'd absolutely love to see the Alchemist wreck in real life, and anyone who can, 
is so lucky, in my opinion. There are loads of awesome photographs of it online, taken throughout the decades in various stages of disrepair, so have a search, or wait until I put some images on the Haunted Up North Twitter and Instagram accounts, because they're truly eerie and breathtaking, as many creepy shitwreck photos are. Despite the nature of its jinxed pass, the Alchemist is a popular diving spot, though many local skippers refuse to go near due to superstitions concerning not only its tainted history, but the vessel's notorious reputation for being one of the world's most haunted shipwrecks. Reports of unexplained phenomena aboard the Alchemist have abounded for decades, ever since reports that, during its hasty construction, a group of welders were accidentally trapped in riveted-up compartments aboard the ship. Despite their bangs and cries for help, they tragically suffocated to death, their lifeless bodies lying undiscovered until the morning after, when it was too late to save them. During the time in which the Alchemist was owned by the Norwegian Shipping and Trade Mission, the crew claimed they experienced strange phenomena such as flickering lights, unexplained engine failure, cold spots and eerie radio static. In August 1944, a murder-suicide took place upon the Alchemist, when the ship was operating under its previous name of Vigo Hanstein. Maud E. Stain was a Canadian radio operator who worked aboard the then-Norwegian vessel, as the Norwegian merchant ships was the only fleet that allowed women to serve in the Second World War military. Stain served on the ship for around six months when the Vigo was being used to transport gliders to Naples, Italy. While the ship was unloading its cargo, Maud was shot dead by a fellow crew member who took his own life immediately after. Official military documents of the hushed-up incident claim that Stain was killed by enemy fire and she was classed as the first woman from Toronto to die in service. Ever since this horrific incident, rumour has it that the ship is cursed by the ghost of Maudstain, as well as those of the sealed-in welders, with locals blaming the vessel's extensive run of bad luck running aground, as well as the fires experienced by the 1963 salvage workers on their restless spirits. Ray Krakauer, one of the ship's original caretakers, who worked aboard the Alchemist after she ran aground in 1963, talking to a local newspaper about his time working on the ship, recalled some particularly unsettling occasions where he found himself perplexed and frightened by his experiences there. I particularly remember the eerie sight of seeing something coming towards me like a bright light the size of a man, he said. I picked up a piece of 3 by 2 timber and stood there waiting. I said something like, Come on, you naughty word. But then I thought better of it and dropped the lump of wood and climbed the ladder out of the hold. There was also the clatter of the morse key in the radio room, though it was locked and sealed by the customs people. There's a website called Perth Girl, which I'll add to the show notes, that details a long string of haunted and generally unappealing happenings said to have taken place in and around the Alchemist, both in its current shipwreck status and when it was a working vessel. I'm going to read some of them out to you. 
Apparitions of a small dog have been spotted in the engine room. Phenomena such as footsteps on ladders, the smell of cooking and noises coming from the kitchen galley, and tools being moved around by unseen hands were all experienced by salvage workers during the time in which they occupied the wreck. Local cray fishermen have witnessed the phantom of a human figure, locally referred to as Henry, wearing rubber boots and oilskins, walking about on board. The skull of Herbert Voy, a renowned long-distance swimmer, was found near the wreck after he vanished in 1969 on an attempted swim between Cottesloe Beach and Rottnest Island. Numerous accounts of near drownings, boat engine failures and accidents have been reported nearby. Horses refuse to gallop past the wreck and dogs are said to become anxious and distressed about the area. By the spring of 2007, the alchemist had disintegrated to the point where only a small section could be viewed from the coastline above the waterline, and this is the view you get of it from the shoreline nowadays, too. Although you can't see that much of it now, I I find this current view pretty atmospheric in itself. It's very unique, it's very distinctive, but there are some amazing shots of the ship from the air, where you can see the shadow of the main bulk of the boat. I will... I will... Add some images to social media, like I said before, and I'll share Sam's video too. You can visit her Instagram page to see her personal photos of the alchemist at sam.icreations and you can also look at some groovy clothes she's made as well. If anyone listening has some scary tales to tell about their experiences with the SS alchemist, please do get in touch. I should love to hear about them, as I'm sure everyone else would. I do, in the meantime though, have some more creepy stories about big, eerie Australian boats. If you should like to hear about them, as the king would say. For the very first time. Here's a bit of juicy ghost gossip about the city of Adelaide which is the world's oldest surviving composite clipper ship in Adelaide, South Australia. I had to Google what a clipper ship was, or is, because I didn't have a clue about what that meant. But apparently a clipper ship is, or was, a type of mid-19th century sailing vessel designed for speed. They were generally small and narrow, with a large total sail area, and Port Adelaide has the world's oldest one, Built in 1864 to transport passengers and cargo from London to Adelaide. More than a quarter of a million Australians are able to trace their ancestral routes back to the passengers who arrived in Australia aboard this ship, so it's of significant historical value to many in the country. It's made 23 in its lifetime, 23 separate three-month-long voyages from London to Adelaide, before it was eventually used as a cargo ship to transport timber around North America. From 1893, it served as a quarantine hospital for highly infectious diseases near Southampton in the UK, until 30 years after it was used as a drill ship by the Royal Navy. (laughs) Navy even, (laughs) not the Navy. After it was left abandoned, funds were raised to transport it back to Adelaide, where it remains a functioning museum that's not only filled with the sublime scent of history, but with the spectral sight of unexplained phantoms. 
Various visitors to the city of Adelaide have witnessed both the apparition of a woman in a blue dress and dark, shadow-like figures, with some even claiming to have captured photographic evidence of such phenomena. Unusual noises have been heard about the Adelaide, including disembodied footsteps, the sound of a baby crying in the ship's hold, and a hammock has been seen swinging violently to and fro of its own accord. Naughty hammock. Do you want me to tell you about some ghost ships? As in, ships that have been found inexplicably abandoned. I'm just gonna go for it. Don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. In 2006, Australian Coast Watch... <laughs> I'll start that again. <laughs> In 2006, an Australian Coast Watch plane found an 80-metre tanker ship floating 180 kilometres southwest of Weeper, Queensland, in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Sounds like a fictional realm from the She-Ra slash He-Man franchise, doesn't it? Photographs were taken of the ship, after which the Australian Customs Service immediately dispatched a patrol boat. The vessel was found inoperable, with a broken tow rope and no crew on board. All identifiable markings of the boat had been removed or painted over. However, materials discovered at the scene indicated that the vessel was called Jiansheng. The Coast Guard was never able to determine the ship's origins, so it was eventually towed into deep water and sunk. On the 31st of October, Halloween 2002, fishing boat Aim High No. 6 left the port of Liaochiu in southern Taiwan and was found drifting without its crew 80 nautical miles east of Rowley Shoals in Australian waters on January 8, 2003. The engine was on full throttle, with the main gas tank empty, and the auxiliary and the auxiliary <laughs> I can't say it <laughs> and the auxiliary fuel tanks full. There were plenty of provisions on board, along with the missing crew's personal effects, and there were no visible signs of a struggle. The contents of the hold revealed a cargo of rotting fish, and the ship was equipped for longline fishing. Soon after it was discovered, it was revealed that calls were still being made from the boat engineer's mobile phone, and it was presumed at this point that a mutiny had taken place aboard the Aim High No. 6. After tracking down one of the boat members, Indonesian police arrested the individual, who confessed that on the 8th of December 2022, they, along with the help of other members, had killed the captain and engineer, though their motives behind the crime have forever remained a mystery. In April 2007, the SV Cars 2 was found floating 88 miles off the Australian coast near the Great Barrier Reef, five days after it set sail on the 15th day of the same month from Airlie Beach towards Townsville, Queensland. The first signs of anything being amiss with the boat came on the 18th of April when a helicopter spotted the ship adrift near the Great Barrier Reef, reporting that the personnel on board showed visible signs of distress. The ship was sailing with an inexperienced three-man crew, Derek Batten, Peter Tunstead and James Tunstead, all residents of Perth. 
two days later, maritime authorities caught up with and boarded the vessel to find all three sailors missing under incredibly strange circumstances. The Queensland Emergency Management Office stated that the ship was in good seaworthy condition and was laid out as if the crew were still on board. Food and flatware were displayed upon the table, a laptop computer was on and the engine remained running. The boat's emergency systems, including radio and GPS, were fully functional and all life jackets were accounted for. The anchor was up and there was even a small boat still hoisted on the stern. The only signs that anything had been out of the ordinary were, of course, the missing crew, the fact that one of the boat's sails was badly shredded and the life draft was gone, though no one really knew for sure whether the vessel had ever contained one. No trace of third-party involvement or foul play was ever found. The cabin was neat and tidy, with only a few used butter knives found inside the sink. After analysing course data from the ship's GPS system, police discovered that on the morning of its departure from Airlie Beach, Cars 2 was steered northeast into an area of squalls and rough water, and by late afternoon it was registering as a drift. Footage recorded by James Tunstead on the 15th of April at 10.05am, shortly before the men vanished, showed that Batten had been at the helm, Tunstead was sitting fishing on the boat stairway, a long white rope was trailing behind the vessel, the engine was off, the fenders were out and hanging from the safety rails, none of the crew were wearing life jackets, despite the sea being choppy and Tunstead's shirt and glasses were not, at that point, in the place where they were later found aboard the adrift and vacant boat. Though multiple and extensive search and rescue operations were launched, no trace of the sailors was ever found, and on the 8th of August, 2008, an inquest into the men's disappearance began in the Townsville Coroner's Court. 27 witnesses were called to testify, and to help shed some possible light onto the Kaza's fateful chain of events. Despite all best efforts, however, Queensland State Coroner Michael Barnes admitted in his final official report that he could not be so definitive about the circumstances under which the deaths occurred, because at this point it was to be presumed that the men were no longer alive. However, based on eyewitness accounts, along with the video found on board and the state in which the vessel was found, the report proposed the following scenario. On Sunday the 15th of April 2007, at 10.05am, the Cars 2 were sailing in the vicinity of George Point. Up to that moment, everything was going as planned, but in the following hour, their situation changed dramatically. The men hauled in the white rope that was trailing behind the boat and bundled it up onto the foredeck possibly to dry, next to the locker it was normally kept in. For unknown reasons, James Tunstead then took off his t-shirt and glasses and placed them on the back seat. The report says that since the men's fishing lure was found entangled in the ship's portside rudder, an obvious explanation would be that one of them tried to free the lure and fell overboard whilst doing so. Standing on the boat's sugar scoop platform, in brackets, a platform at the back of the ship close to the waterline, while the boat is moving, is perilous, 
and falling in the water is easy, but getting back aboard is almost impossible. One of the other men then came to the rescue of his brother, while Batten, still on board, started the motor and realised he had to drop the sails before he could go back for his friends. As he left the helm to drop the sails, a deviation of the ship's course or wind direction could have easily caused a jibe, swinging the boom across the deck and knocking Batten overboard. This could even have happened before Batten was able to untie and throw out the life ring to his friends. A blue coffee mug found near the life ring may support this. Since the boat was travelling before wind, and at a speed of 15... Oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> is that 15 knots? Is it 15 knots? In brackets, 28 kilometres per hour. I presume it's knots. At a speed of 15 knots. I think? Anyway, 28 <laughs> kilometres per hour. It's not funny. It's not, it's not funny, this story. I shouldn't be laughing. But because of this, the boat would be out of reach of the men within seconds. The report states, from that point, the end would have been swift. None of them were good swimmers, the seas were choppy, the men would have quickly become exhausted and sunk beneath the waves. Several questions, however, as is expected in connection with mysteries such as these, have been raised concerning the disappearance of the Cars 2 crew. According to Townsville authorities, the sea had been rough between the time in which the boat set off on the 15th of April and the time when it was found. However, one issue with the theory that its crew had met with bad weather and subsequently gone overboard was that the contents of the cabin did not appear to have been disrupted in any way. The men's fishing lines and laundry were also set out, and their life jackets still stowed, suggesting that there was no sign of rough weather when they are presumed to have vanished. The fact that the fenders were out led to speculation that the boat may have docked with another unknown vessel, onto which the crew might have willingly or unwillingly transferred. In support of this, Hope Hyming, the niece of the Cast 2's owner, Derek Batten, says that the fenders were out on their yacht, and the only reason you ever put them out is when another boat comes aside, or if you come to rest against a wharf. According to family members, the Tunsteads, contrary to wider opinion, were not nautical novices and had sailed together from around 18 years of age, even working in the radio rooms of the Volunteer Sea Rescue. Volunteer radio operator Ivan Orms recorded that the vessel crew radioed in at 6.45pm on the evening of their departure, giving their position as George Point. This is the last known contact with the Cars 2. It should have only taken them two and a half hours to get to George Point, leaving a lack of clarity surrounding the reasons for it taking them so long to arrive there. Other suggestions as to the nature of the tragedy that befell the crew of the Cars 2 is that the boat became stuck on a sandbar near George Point, where the boat's last radio message was made. When they jumped overboard to push it free, a gust of wind blew and the boat drifted away, leaving the men stranded in the water. Another is that one crew member may have been washed overboard by a freak wave and that the others died trying to rescue him. <sighs> this is all very sad. It's very compelling and mysterious matter, but it's all very sad as well. 
I can't imagine the horror of knowing your loved one died at sea. Not that dying at sea is worse than any other types of horrible death, but you sometimes forget about the people who have to deal with the aftermath of those they care about being claimed by the ocean. Especially those who'll most probably never have any real closure about what happened to them. So for those who aren't involved listening or reading about mysteries such as these, the thrill is in the fact that the loose ends aren't tied up. But for the people involved with all the heartbreak that inevitably ensues in the aftermath, it's not a particularly fun thing to think about. Um, I've finished now, by the way. I've, I've finished doing ghost ships and haunted boats and spooky Australian stuff. For now, anyway. I'd love to hear your stories about haunted sea vessels, though, if you have any, that is. Send them in to hauntedupnorth at gmail.com for a chance to hear them read out upon the show. I do have a little water-based doorstep ghost story to tell you from none other than our good friend Nick Steele, who's appeared on this show a couple of times. If you've listened to Hun number 17 and number 21, you'll know exactly who I mean. But I received a message from Nick Steele the other day telling me that he'd recently visited Fountains Abbey in Ripon, North Yorkshire, England, which is one of the largest and best-preserved ruined Cistercian monasteries in England, and rumoured to be a rather haunted hotspot around these parts. Obviously an ideal candidate for a future Haunted Up North episode, Point of Focus, But this is what he said to me when he messaged me about an experience he had at Fountains Abbey. I won't try and do Nick's voice. (laughs) You all know what it sounds like. But it does seem weird reading it out and not trying to do his voice. (laughs) I'll just do a deep voice. I (laughs) I forgot to tell you. I had a weird experience at Fountains Abbey fairly recently. I didn't feel anything for the majority of our visit. And then we approach the room. (laughs) Nick sounds nothing like this. He'll be upset. (laughs) I didn't... I'm going to stop. I didn't feel anything for the majority of our visit. And then we approach the ruins from the south side and stop to admire the river on a bridge. When I stood on the left side of that bridge, I just had the most uncomfortable feeling that somebody had suffered or been in terrible fear at that point. I really couldn't put my finger on it like somebody fell into the river and died. Just a strange aura of dread and fear. Haven't really experienced a sensation like that for a while. So Nick's provided an image to go with that story, taken from Google Maps, so I'll share it on the socials, and if you have any weird encounters relating to Fountains Abbey in North Yorkshire, especially in the vicinity of the river, let me know about those as well and we'll make a big flippin' episode about it. My cat's eating the biscuits again. Speaking of Nick Steele, he's only gone and got another book out, as in out in the world. It's out there. Out there. And it's available to buy. Which is good. It's called Things and That, and you can get it on Amazon, like, now. I'll add the link to the show notes so you can purchase it if you so wish. It's a book of poetry which he's created using his excellent mind, and he's even designed the cover himself, because he's a writer and a designer. A fact you'll already know if you're familiar with his previous Haunted Up North appearances. If you'd like a signed copy of Things and That by Nick Steele, 
then hit him up, as in contact him. Don't hit him. Contact him on his Instagram page, the Nick Steele. Steele spelt S-T-E-E-L. And he'll most gladly sort you out. I myself have a signed copy of Things and That by Nick Steele, and it's sitting here in front of me right now. It's an awesome collection of writings and poems, really sweet, considered, and funny. And Nick's even provided a small descriptor of what each poem's about at the beginning of each piece to explain a little more about the meaning behind these thoughtful, sentimental snapshots of everyday truths and realnesses. And I thought it would be nice to read one of these poems out, so I've picked my favourite, despite it being extremely hard to pick a favourite, seeing as they're all so excellent, but pick one I did, and it's a lovely one, inspired by his equally excellent wife Christina, who's also appeared on Haunted Up North, and it's called The Thing. I was initially drawn to this piece because The Thing is the title of one of my favourite horror films, but it's absolutely nothing like John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror film. In fact, its themes are entirely the opposite, as you'll soon find out. So without further ado, here is The Thing, from Things and That, by Nick Steele, the introduction of which reads, Young Mrs. Steele is an absolute brain box. She is bilingual, has multiple qualifications, and is one of the finest hand-lettering artists in the land. Despite this, she tends to communicate by replacing common nouns with thing, or thingy. It's endearing and infuriating, and we both do it, all the time. So I'm just going to wait for my cat to stop eating her biscuits. Okay, here's The Thing by Nick Steele. I don't know where, or even what, it is. But here's the thing. It's lost. And from downstairs, I hear a shout ringing up one flight. Honey, have you seen my thing? I'd be lying if I said I even had an inkling. So I sing back down. What thing? And instantly wince at my psychic power failure. Because I can tell, by the concerned minor shift to major, and the manner of the volume of the response she vocally slings at me, because by now I should just know what thing means. You know, my thing. It's next to the thing on top of the big thing, by the thin thing and that little wooden thing. And now I detect a bubbling in my brain, as my confidence swings to a level so low it's troubling. I can't focus nor can I bring myself to figure out what thing she means. I needn't resort to extremes, such as asking. No. Then, something gleams. Over there. Next to the thing by the little wooden thing, and the thin thing on top of the big thing. And I proudly proclaim, with all the joys of spring. Darling, I've found your thing. And bring her her engagement ring. I love you, she says, you lovely thing. And then there is a bonus, this is me speaking now. Well, I was speaking anyway, but this is me speaking as me, reading uh, reading this from Nick's book. 
There's a bonus alternative ending for live shows, depending on the audience, and it reads, I love you, she says, but that's not the thing. So sorry, Nick, there's absolutely no way I did that justice compared to you reading that out as a professional poet. But I did think I was going to start crying in the middle of that, but I held it in, so I did quite well, considering. But thanks, Nick, for allowing me to read one of your poems out, and if you, the listener, liked what you heard, Things and That by Nick Steele is available to buy on Amazon. Click on the link in the show notes if you'd like to purchase your very own copy, or contact Nick on Instagram if you'd prefer one signed by the author himself. That's it for now. Thanks Instagram Sam for suggesting the SS Alchemist shipwreck as today's Haunted Up North talking topic. And thank you all for letting me inject a bit of Perth soul into your day. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live the Australian coast and all who haunt her. And may her power forever compel you to never presume. I I often get stuck here and end up forcing some stupid never-presume sentence out that often isn't funny and doesn't even really make sense, so I've decided to go online and generate a nonsensical, inspirational quote instead to end at least this episode on. I'll probably do it. I'll probably keep doing it, to be honest. Are you ready for today's? Are you ready for it? Long live the Australian coast and all who haunt her, and may her power forever compel you to never presume that you are as arousing as sliced bread. See you later. Bye. Nowhere is safe from my bumheadery.